chapter number 20. We are in a study on Wednesday nights that corresponds with the mission of our church to help people find and follow Jesus. And we are studying through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings um, because that really follows Jesus. And uh, we, if we're going to help people find and follow Jesus, we need to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we're having a good study through there. Can't wait to preach Sunday morning. Finished that message yesterday out of Mark chapter 5. We, we talked about the first 20 verses um, this last Sunday morning on the demoniac man. And, uh, and then um, we are going to be finishing chapter 5 with um, the healing of Jairus' daughter who was dead by the time Jesus got to her. And then in between you know, the time when he found out he needed to go to Jairus' daughter's house and heal her, on his way, he got interrupted by a woman who had a, a, a blood disease for 12 years. And so he had this 12-year-old girl that was almost dead, this woman who had a 12-year-old disease that was about to kill her, and Jesus fixed both of them. And, and what it shows us, really, is, is the journey of one man's faith, Jairus' faith. It shows us the journey of his faith from the time he was a ruler in the synagogue. I'll tell you about that on Sunday morning. It, so it was remarkable that he would go throw himself at the feet of Jesus. And he did that because he was desperate. And he had this faith, this very small mustard-sized faith. But in that journey, from the moment he, he threw himself at Jesus' feet at the shores of Capernaum to when he got to his daughter's house and she was dead and Jesus said, Arise, and she arose and, and she was living again, there was, a, there was like a, a growth in his faith. And the whole idea, I think, of that passage is if you'll keep believing, God will, will keep working. Amen. And it's amazing what God can do with even imperfect faith. He can't do anything if we have no faith. In fact, Jesus deems it morally wrong to do great deeds where there is no faith. We'll study that in chapter 6. He went to Nazareth. They didn't believe, they didn't, uh, believe he was the Messiah. They thought he was just the carpenter's son. Jesus said, I can't do anything here. No faith. But Jairus had little faith. He had wavering faith, little faith. But Jesus can take little imperfect faith and do amazing things with it. And so uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. That's a little more than a preview of the message. But um, I'm excited about it on Sunday. I was going to say we are in this Wednesday night series then that complements that. And we've always seen this list of 12 disciples. The reason why I'm rehearsing this is because there's some children's workers that are normally up in the kids clubs on Wednesdays. We're all in together. Today, so they haven't been in this series, but there's normally these lists in the Gospels of the 12 disciples that Jesus called. And we know things a little bit about Peter and James, maybe, and John. Of course, we know Judas, right? The guy we don't want to be like. Um, at least Judas Iscariot. Um, but we don't know a lot about the other guys in the list. And so we've been talking about each disciple one by one. Brother Mike did a fabulous job talking about Matthew last Wednesday. We're talking about Thomas Tonight, we know Thomas best by the nickname Doubting Thomas. What we're going to study in the text tonight is where we get that name for Thomas. That episode in his life where he doubted. And while it's true that, that Thomas seemed to be more on the pessimistic side, I'm not sure the nickname Doubting Thomas gives us the full picture of what was going on in his life during this time in John chapter 20. Because before Thomas was ever doubting, he was discouraged. So we should probably call him the discouraged doubter. 
Think about it. His Savior had just died. I'm talking about the one he forsook all to follow, had just been crucified and buried. And now Thomas was grieving this loss. I mean, they just had his funeral, basically, as were the other disciples. On top of that, our text is going to tell us these guys were fearful that they were next. And so so they they were in all kinds of chaos. So in the midst of fear and discouragement revolving around Jesus' death, Thomas began to struggle with doubt. He was already a pessimistic warrior kind of guy. But discouragement made it worse. I want you to get this statement because it's so true. Discouragement is the soil in which doubt grows. Catch that, please. Doubt doesn't just arise out of nowhere. It, it It is the fruit that comes out of a discouraged season of life. If you see doubt in your mind, if you start doubting God, you start doubting the word, you start doubting the love of God in your life, I, I, you mark it down. It didn't start with doubt. Doubt is the fruit of you going through something that discouraged you first. Some of the greatest people in the Bible have went through seasons of discouragement that led to doubt. I think of Elisha, the Old Testament prophet. Not everybody got to be an Old Testament prophet. If you're an Old Testament prophet, you're on God's short list. I mean, it's a special calling. The man was committed to the things of God. He was committed to the righteousness of God and preaching the righteousness of God. He would have given his life to do it. And Elisha was following the Lord. He had just called down fire from heaven, right? You remember that? smashed up or burned up rather all the prophets of Baal there and there would be sacrifice. He was on a mountaintop and then Jezebel threatened him, ran him out of town and he sat under a tree and basically said, I want to die. He was suicidal, a committed preacher. If he had a gun in his hand would have pulled the trigger. And he even started to doubt. Because he told God, there's nobody else in the world like me. But, but God had to set him straight, right? That doubt didn't arise out of nowhere. It was the fruit of a discouraged season. I think of John the Baptist, who Jesus himself said, there's not a greater man to ever walk the face of the earth, born of women, than John the Baptist. I mean, that is a high remark. I mean, his grade was A plus in Jesus' mind. But whenever he called out Herod for for his whole marriage scandal, what happened? Herod put him in prison. And while he was in, John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the forerunner. He's the one that cried. He was a voice in the wilderness that said, prepare the way of the Lord. This guy is Jesus Christ. And then he gets into a discouraged season and he begins to doubt that he was right in the first place. Mary and Martha, two really close friends of Jesus, had him into their home, had a brother named Lazarus that died. Sent the disciples to tell Jesus, Matt, Lazarus is almost dead. Tell Jesus to get here. I know when he hears that his good friend Lazarus is about to die, he will drop everything and even risk coming back to this area where they want to kill him because Lazarus is a good friend. And Jesus told the disciples, no. 
Now let, let's stick around here for a couple days. Why? He's just sleeping. It's okay. He's not dead. Jesus said, I, I'm going to stick around, disciples, because you need some exercise in your faith so that you would believe is what he told his disciples. And Jesus got back. And do and you remember Martha let him have it? Why? Because Jesus discouraged her because of his inaction. And then that led to doubt. Do you even love us? And Thomas was no different. Like Elisha, like John the Baptist, like Mary and Martha. Thomas wasn't some type of backslidden Christian. Listen, he wasn't a fringe disciple. He was one of the original 12. He was deeply committed to following Jesus, even to his death. In that same story in John 11, where Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, we're not going to go back yet. They want to stone us back in that area. Okay, so we're not going to go back. I'll take care of Lazarus later. Look what Thomas said. Then said Thomas, which, which is called Didymus. You know what Didymus means? It means twin. So apparently Thomas was a twin. That's what they think. And he said this unto his fellow disciples. Let us also go that we may die with him. That's commitment. Thomas was like, hey, if we got to go back to a dangerous place to do ministry, who cares? We'll die with you. Let's do so Thomas wasn't like this really scared dude. He was a committed follower of Christ. Here's what I want to show you. Committed Christians can become discouraged doubters. Prophets, greatest man born of woman, Mary and Martha, and an original 12, one of the 12 disciples begin to doubt. Now, here's my question. How do we prevent this from happening to us? Seasons of discouragement, we know, don't we? They're inevitable in our Christian life. How do we keep that discouragement from turning into doubt? How do we face those seasons of life with confidence? I think that's what our text shows us in John 20. We're going to see the reason why we sometimes let our discouragement turn into doubt. And then we're going to see what Jesus taught about how we can have confidence through our seasons of discouragement. Look at John 20, verse 19 through 25. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews... Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Why was Thomas a discouraged doubter? Here's why. Because he was living by sight and not by faith. Discouraged Christians often doubt. Here's the, here's the main first point. Because they live by sight and not by faith. I, I personally think Thomas gets a bad rap. I'm going to be honest with you. It's as though he is singled out as the only disciple that struggled with doubt. That's not the case. Notice the first part of verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. They sounded really confident, 
But that's to be expected. They already saw the Lord with their own eyes. Thomas hadn't yet. Did you see? They weren't glad until Jesus showed unto him his hands and his side. So they were worried until they were basically saying, prove it. Whew, okay, you are Jesus. So Jesus appeared in the upper room. Thomas wasn't there. We don't know where he was. Some people build a whole message on the fact that you shouldn't miss church because that's what happens. But that's not what that means. I mean, I would like to think so, but I, it, it's not what it means. John gives us some hints that, that the other followers of Jesus were living by sight and not by faith in John chapter 20, verse 8. Look at that. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. He didn't believe and then he saw. He saw and then he believed. This continued with Mary Magdalene, verse 18 of chapter 20. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Mary Magdalene didn't believe until she saw. So Thomas gets a bad rap is my point. He's not the only doubter. He's not the only disciple in this text living by sight instead of living by faith. And how many times have we been guilty of the same thing? How many times in the discouraged seasons of our life are we living by what we can see and not by what we know is true in the word of God? Oftentimes we, we don't say what Thomas said out loud to the disciples, but we think it. We, we think this, I'll believe it when I see it. I think this shows up in the way we, we view God's working in the lives of those in the world who, who we love, those that we know. Um, I got to thinking about this, like, like loved ones that we all have that we want to see come to Christ. I think we can get to a point with some lost or wayward loved ones where we think to ourselves that they'll never get saved. Now, I know that God says he'll save anyone and that he can draw anyone to himself. But I'll believe that when I see it. Not that coworker, Not that person in the community. Not that granddaughter or grandson. They're way too far gone. Or, or we think of a spouse in terms of man, they'll never change. Oh, I, I'll believe that God's word can change anybody at any time when I see it. But I'm not going to believe it until I see it for that person's life. I mean, they're too far gone. My spouse, I, I don't think so. We, we see an addict. People that are addicted to, to hard drugs or whatever the case might be. And, and it's, it's our temptation in our human flesh to say, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe they can recover when I see it. That shows up in the way we, we view a crisis in our life. Health crisis, relational crisis, financial crisis. Career crisis. We know, we know what the scripture says. We know that God can help us through anything in our life. We know God can fix those things in our life that are broken. We know that God can intervene. I mean, we, we just talked about it last Sunday out of Mark chapter 5. He, 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 he set free a demoniac man who nobody else could deal with. He's going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. He's going to heal a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. I mean, Jesus is kind of good at like fixing crisis situations. We know that, but when we're in the midst of the crisis, we're like, yeah, I'll believe all that when I see it. 
Shows up in how we view the promises of God. Many of which you know in scripture. Many of which we we sang about in the song. Many of which you've heard preached from this pulpit. But when you're in the midst of a discouraging situation or discouraging season of life. What you know with your head. What you know in your heart to be true. You don't see with your eyes. And so if you're not careful. You'll begin to doubt the validity of the promises of God. Like the promise give and it shall be given unto you. Well I've given. And I've yet to see a check in the mail. I've given and people still keep taking. I've given forgiveness and I'm not giving it. I'm not getting it back. I've given an offering and I'm not seeing money fall from the sky. I've given hard work and things keep falling through. I don't know about that promise of God. Show me and then I'll believe it. The promise in Romans chapter 12 that says you can overcome people's evil towards you with acting good towards them. Now, I know that, 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 that that's upside down. The world thinks if they do something bad to you, then you do something bad to them. They make you feel this way. You make them feel this way. The Bible flips that on its head. The Bible says the best way to respond to evil is good. And that's not easy. That's not natural. But the Bible says you can heap coals of fire on their head. You can bring conviction into their life by by treating them with kindness and love and mercy and grace when they don't treat you that way. And and I know that that doesn't always happen right away when you do that. And and in the midst of that discouraging season, when you so much want that relationship to work and you're banking on the promise of Romans chapter 12 that my good will overcome their evil and it doesn't, you're like, oh, I knew it was fake. I'm doubting that 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 even works. Or how about the power of prayer? The promise is this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In other words, God responds to prayer that is fervently coming from a righteous heart. Well, I've been praying for this and this and this for this long. It doesn't seem like it's availing much in my life. Or the promise in James chapter 1. Where it says that if we let it, if we let patience have her perfect work during the hard times in our life, if we let trials work for us, they they will work in us a stronger faith and a deeper sense of belief. And they'll make us a better person and a stronger person and more like Christ. But, But yet you get into a trial, a fiery trial, and it's like the last thing you want is Christ. The last place you feel like going is church. You're not positive, you're negative. You're cynical, you're, you're sour, you're like, man, I, I don't see how this could ever make me a better person. I don't know about you, but in my own crisis situations, in my own seasons of discouragement, I get a little bit like Thomas sometimes. I let discouragement get, give way to doubt. And here's why. I start living by sight rather than faith. If I don't see with my eyes what the preacher preached from the book, I don't believe it. If I don't feel the promise, it must not be true. If it's not happening right away on my timetable, then I begin to doubt it. But what I've always found to be true, I love this, is Jesus is so patient with me even when I'm living by sight. He meets me right where I'm at, even if I have little to no faith at the time. That's what he did with Thomas. Eight days, eight days after Thomas said, show me, then I'll believe. Jesus showed him. Jesus didn't have to do that. 
Jesus could have rolled his eyes and said, dude, I spent three years with you preparing you for this moment. Grow up. <laughs> but he didn't. He was gentle, gracious, patient. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus. You know why Jesus came back? I think he came back just for Thomas. Thomas wasn't there the first time. The door is being shut. And he stood in the midst and he said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas. Thomas didn't have to ask. He already knew Thomas's heart. Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. But when you do, be not faithless, but believing. It's amazing. Jesus would take, I mean, three years of discipleship class and, this, and Thomas flunked. And Jesus said, you know what? I know you got a, I know you got a failing grade. But let me show some mercy. Come here. Let me work with you. And when I, when I kind of look at Thomas and say, man, you really got it wrong. I just have to start thinking about myself. Because I've been saved for over 25 years. I've been walking with God for over 25 years. And I still struggle to live by faith sometimes. I still get discouraged and I still doubt. And yet Jesus every time graciously comes alongside and walks me through it. I think there's something to be said here, church, about how we should deal with people whose faith is struggling. Are you hearing me tonight? I, I, I think of the person that we might encounter who's skeptical about God and they, they're skeptical about the Bible and they're skeptical about church. Maybe they're skeptical due to a bad church experience in the past. Or maybe we encounter a young person who's skeptical because they've been influenced by a college professor they really respect and they bought into humanism and they're struggling to believe in some things they were taught growing up. Maybe it's just somebody that has been dealt a really bad hand in life. They've had to endure a bunch of heartache and they just aren't sure a loving God could ever let so many bad things happen to one person. Maybe it's a newer person, a newer Christian rather. And honestly, their faith is just flimsy. They're up and they're down. Their Christian life is a yo-yo right now because they, they've had a hard time leaving some old friends. They've had a hard time breaking off with some old habits. And, and so it's really hard. Their, their heart is still divided. God is still sanctifying them and, and washing. They're totally forgiving, but, but he's growing them to the point where they can walk away from some associations and walk away from some habits and walk away from some past mistakes. And, and so in that journey, they're kind of up and down and hit and miss. Hey, no matter what what the case might be. There will always be people in our life, always be people that walk through the doors of our church whose faith is struggling. We ought to be patient. We ought to be gracious with those people. We ought to, like Jesus did with Thomas, meet them right where they're at. Don't get exasperated when a doubting Thomas comes your way. Because all it takes is one discouraging season and you become the doubting Thomas. If you're one of those people tonight, you're a discouraged doubter tonight. You're in here, you're a discouraged doubter. Here's what you need to know. You need to know that Jesus will be just as patient and just as gracious with you as he was with Thomas. You need to know that you can talk to the Lord about your doubt and you can do it unfiltered. You can talk to the Lord about your discouragement and you can do it unfiltered. You can be open with the Lord about the things you're struggling to believe right now. Listen, friend, God would rather you be honest with him about your struggles than just give up and walk away during a difficult time. Have you ever studied the prayers of David in the Psalms? That guy was messed up. 
But at least he was honest about it. You know what's different with David and us? We're messed up too. We're just not honest about it. We don't want to talk to God like we're messed up. We don't want to go to church and act like we're messed up. We don't want anybody in the world to know we're messed up. God knows you're messed up. God, God wants to take you and say, give me a finger. Let me put it in my hand. God's never going to let you go. It doesn't matter how much you doubt or how discouraged you are. He will be there to meet you right where you're at. I love that about Jesus. Mercy, I love that about Jesus. I just don't think all the time us Christians who think we have it all together, I don't think we deal with the doubting Thomases in our life as gracious sometimes. We tend to have a, a shorter fuse and a shorter line than Jesus does. Look at verse 28. Look what this did in Thomas's life. It built his faith. Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Thomas's faith became stronger after he doubted. You know why? Because Thomas was an honest doubter. You know, there are honest doubters and there are dishonest doubters. Dishonest doubters, they don't want to believe. They prefer a life of ungodliness and rebellion. This wasn't the spirit of Thomas. Thomas wanted to believe. Thomas wanted to be sure, and that's why he found sympathy from Jesus. God doesn't blame anyone for wanting to be sure. That's why Thomas wasn't condemned by Jesus for his doubts. Here's what I'm learning. Sometimes you need to doubt in order to become more sure. Sometimes it's doubt that causes you to run to the Scriptures to dig for truth. Sometimes it's doubt that causes you to get back into church. Sometimes it's doubt that causes you to seek the Lord more earnestly in prayer. Sometimes it's doubt that causes you to ask the right questions to the right people. The point is that when you doubt, you don't have to stay there. You can come to the Lord with that doubt and you will be met every time with patience and grace and mercy. You agree with that tonight? But there's a warning. Just because Jesus is patient with us when we walk by sight and not by faith doesn't mean that we should continue to walk by sight. Jesus is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And so he, he, he met Thomas where he was at, but he didn't leave him there. He wanted to minister to him where he was at, very gracious, but he didn't stop there. He began to teach him a better way. And he began to teach him this. You don't have to live by sight. You can live by faith. In fact, he's going to teach him this. There are actually greater blessings that await those who choose to believe what they can't see. Look what he said in verse 29. Jesus saith in him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. But he, he, watch what he says here. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Here's what we learn. Christians can live with confidence in discouraging times when they live by faith and not by sight. That's the answer. This is how we prevent our discouragement from turning into doubt. I think Jesus was speaking to Thomas about a future time, honestly, when the apostolic age would be over. There'd be no more signs and no more wonders to solidify the work and existence of God. Rather, there would be the revelation of God to man in Scripture. That's what we hold in our hands today. Jesus was speaking of the church age, the age we're in right now. And he gave a beatitude of sort. He said, blessed are those. There's a special blessing reserved for those who would believe the scripture in spite of having never seen Jesus face to face or never having seen an apostolic sign or wonder. In case you're wondering, that's you. That's me. 
There are blessings that come from the Lord in heaven when we choose to believe God's word by faith, even though we can't see it with our eyes. That's what faith really is. Believing what we can't always see. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. It describes it this way. It's beautiful. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the rest of the chapter lays out these very ordinary but awesome men and women of God that said they lived by faith. What does that mean? They chose to live by faith, not by sight. And and, and I want you to hear this. We're talking about men like Noah, who God said, build an ark because it's going to rain. And in in the history of the world up to that point, they had never seen a drop of rain come from the sky. It's normal to us, very abnormal to Noah, but he got to building anyway. Don't take that for granted. It's not a kid's story. That's an amazing story of faith. It's it's incredible that he started building for 120 years without modern tools. The man built an ark. Our our academy students, high school students, toured the ark encounter in Kentucky. I think it's Kentucky or Ohio, one of the two. I've been there, just don't remember where it was. Uh, One of those states. They toured that today. And they said it's unreal. And it is. It'll blow you away. The dimensions of the ark they built without modern tools and the ingenuity it took to, to preserve the life of those animals inside of there, outside of their natural habitat. It's crazy. That's all a result of faith. Faith. Abraham, who when he had Isaac after praying for him for decades, had his, had his son Isaac. God said, take Isaac up to a mountain. And you're going to sacrifice him to me. God, what about an animal? Isaac is the animal. Okay, I gave you your your son Isaac, but now I want you by faith to go lay him on an altar, take a knife, and slit his throat. Read it, Genesis 22. And what did Abraham do? He marched him up to Mount Moriah, put him on an altar, lifted his hand. And that's when God provided a rent. That's faith. If one of you jokers told me to put my son, Kevin, my only son, on on an altar, I I would laugh you to scorn. Maybe if he was 16, I would consider it. (laughs) But I still love him. I actually still like him, too. I wouldn't do it. That's faith, man. That's faith. Moses was was put into a basket, Hebrews 11 talks about, and he was floated down this river, and Pharaoh's daughter picked him up. He instantly went from slavery to royalty. And he was, he, was, he was raised in a palace. The dude could eat whatever he wanted. Had the nicest robes and sandals of any kid in town. Had, had servants at his beck and call. But when he was old enough to make his own choice, by faith, he left the palace and went with God's people. Who does that? Who runs from a white house to an orphanage? Somebody with faith. Do you understand That faith is more than a state of mind. Do you get this? Living by faith is more than how you think. Every single name mentioned in Hebrews 11 has a story attached to it. There's action. There's steps. Like faith, it's not like some kind of magic trick. Faith is the state of mind that leads to action. And by faith, They chose to obey God's word, even when they didn't know all the details, even when they couldn't see it with their own eyes. 
Man, I, I, I've had a couple moments in my life where, where I have, all I've had, all I've had was a promise in God's word at that very moment. It's all I had. There are times when I chose to not li- live by that promise and I panicked and I worried. But there are times I can remember in my life, just a few that stick out to me that I remember I hung on every word in that verse. Some of you know my testimony. Growing up as preachers got saved at a young age, but I doubted my salvation for many years. And so when a preacher would preach on heaven and hell, I just struggled with that. I wrestled. When, he, when he talked, preachers would talk about Jesus could come back at any moment, don't get left behind. And by the way, that is real. But, but when they preached that way, I, I, that would freak me out. And when I was a 19-year-old boy, on my 19th birthday, my dad prayed with me. And he said, I just want you to, mem- I want you to memorize one verse. I want, you to, I want you to think about this one verse. It's simple. But I want it to be the promise you claim when doubt comes. And it was, it was Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And my dad said, son, as a seven-year-old boy, you knelt at the foot of my bed. you remember that? Yes, sir. Remember I got that big family Bible out and showed you from the scripture? Yes, sir. Remember you were crying? Yes, sir. You remember what you said? No. Remember the date? No. But do you remember that, that you believe Jesus died for you? Yes, sir. You remember praying? Yes, sir. Then you're saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And to this day, when the devil takes back that bow and shoots that dart of doubt at me, guess what I quote to him? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's not a liar. I asked Jesus to save me. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? I wasn't wasn't old enough. He said, come to me with childlike faith. I was certainly old enough. I was a child. I understood. Yeah. I I, I can remember when I first became youth pastor here. And and, kind of had a rough go at it for a little bit. My dad sat down and he said, son, I, I want you to get into liberal high school and, and I want you to meet those kids and bring them here. We just had a small group of kids coming to our, our church at the time and, and most were from our Christian academy. So I, I, he wanted us to reach out into our community. And Man, I, I became a substitute teacher. I became a basketball official. I, I volunteered at schools and I tried to meet coaches and I, I tried to meet ADs and I tried to meet principals and I tried to meet kids. I'd go eat lunch. I just couldn't get kids to come to church with me. And then I became a bus driver and and, and, and uh, the rest is history. You know that story of how we reached the soccer team. But through all of that time, it was about a three-year period when I was trying and trying and trying and not seeing any fruit. You, you know what, what, what I hung on to? A verse in Ecclesiastes loving that says, cast your bread on the water. It'll return to you after many days. And the principle is this. You keep making investments. You keep casting seeds. God will bring a harvest. And I remember during the most discouraging times of ministry in my life, when I would invite, 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 and on Wednesday nights there'd be no new kids. I would hang on that promise. I couldn't see it, but I was trying to live by it. I asked my wife, she struggles with Crohn's disease and has these major Remicade treatments. And, and she's, a, she's a tough woman, but goes through some, some daily difficulties with that. And, and, and I asked her this. I said, what promise helps you get through those treatments and that pain and, um, you know, all, all the things you wrestle with? And, and, and she told me, it's, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
She says, when Paul asked Jesus to take away his thorn in the flesh three different times, we don't know what it was. It was something that caused him a lot of pain because the thorn, the, 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 the Greek word is, is a spear. Not, it's not like a splinter, it's a spear. And Paul said, take this away. And Jesus said, no. But here's what Jesus said. I won't take away what hurts, but I'll give you my grace. For my grace is sufficient for thee. And my wife said every time, she's like, as far as we can tell, God's never going to take away Crohn's disease. There's no cure. But every time I'm hurting, I understand that God has all sufficient grace. And she hangs on that promise. And I don't know if there are any here tonight and, and, and you're, you're in a season of discouragement and, and that discouragement is bearing the fruit of doubt because you're living by sight, not by faith. Maybe you need to just, you need to pick a promise tonight. You need, you need to find a promise in God's word that is unique to your situation and you need to memorize it and you need to claim it and you need to believe it and you need to live by it. Amen. By the way, just because you believe it and you live by it doesn't mean it's just going to come to fruition right away. Okay, your faith doesn't put God on the hook for anything. But if you'll believe, a lot of times that does move the heart of our God. And even if he doesn't take it away, he has a promise for that too. It's his grace. That is all sufficient. Man, I just want to encourage you tonight. If you're a doubting Thomas, for whatever reason, whatever reason, and you know it, you know it. Don't go another day living by sight. Your life, your situation, your, your mental state, your emotion, it'll only get worse. If you're waiting to see it, then you'll, it'll only get worse. Jesus will deal graciously with you. But you won't overcome doubt until you learn to live by what you can't see. And that is called faith. You agree with the Bible tonight? Say amen. amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed.